0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, this morning is not only Father's Day, but it's also officially the first day of summer, which I was telling my guests here from South Carolina, that really means a lot to us in Minnesota after the six months that we go through that we call winter. And it's very hopeful to come to this point. It's always sad to get to the state fair and think that summer is gone, and it's passing us. But at this point to say, June 20th, first official day of summer, that's good news. We're hopeful here in Minnesota when we hear that. And we're hopeful when we hear that vaccination rates are climbing and that uh, new cases of COVID-19 are down and that deaths related to COVID-19 are down. We feel a fresh hopefulness as we move into the summer. And it could be all too easy for us, as a church, in a moment like this, with this great hopefulness, to have a kind of selective amnesia about the last 15 months, and just try to put it all behind us quickly, and fill up our schedules again with formerly suspended activities and events as they come back with a fury. But for many of us, these last 15 months, have been the strangest of our lifetime. In the rest of our lives, we will talk about 2020 and we'll know what is meant or communicated by that. Too much to communicate in a single sentence. It's easy now to not look back much or to look back and just say, that was so bizarre 15 months ago, April and March of 2020 and forget how frightening some of those moments were and all all of the the lack of detail, all the uncertainty. These have not been easy times that we have just lived through. And as we come this morning to 1 Peter 4, I'm struck by how well this passage speaks into our moment as a church. As we kind of get here on the other side of this global pandemic. This is a passage that we need. Before we move on too quickly, back to life as normal or the new normal, it will do us really well to linger, perhaps one more time for a few minutes on this reality of a global pandemic that we've been through. It is not that our normal lives are really the normal in this age and that a pandemic is unusual. Rather, a pandemic is normal for the age in which we live. And in America, and in our affluent lives, our normal is often not matching up to the normal of what it means to live in this age between Jesus' first coming and his second. Pandemics are what's actually going on in this sinful world, sickness, Disease, tragedy, death, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, peril, sword, as Paul says in Romans eight thirty five. These are the normal of the age in which we live, the age in which we have lived all of our lives on this earth. And that's alongside God's spectacular grace and kindness that sustain us in times like these. So I think 1 Peter 4 has for us this morning three important words for our life together after COVID. About our times, about the supply of strength that we have and about the calling that we have together as a church in times like these. And these, these callings, these are for every time and season in the church age. But they are particularly pressing for us in days like these as we seek to find our feet again after all we've been through in the last 15 months. So Peter's first message for us this morning, number one, is we know our times. This is verse 7. We know our times. Look with me at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You might remember from last week, Pastor Jonathan preached, how verses one to six set up this mention in verse seven of the end of all things being near. And with the coming of Christ, God's focus on the nation of Israel has expanded now to all the nations. And Jesus comes and he offers forgiveness. He offers all nations to be forgiven. He calls for repentance from all nations. The time has come, Peter says in verse 3, to summon and to win unbelievers out of their sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. In Christ, we do not join them in their sin. And when we don't, they are surprised and might slander us. It's very relevant 2,000 years later. In verse five, Peter says they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, which will happen at the end. Jesus is coming back at the end. So Peter says, now in verse seven, the end is at hand. What does that mean, Peter? The end is at hand. Here we are, almost 2,000 years later, after he said, the end is at hand. Did Peter miss it? Did he think it was going to happen in his lifetime and it didn't? Or is Peter saying that everything that's happened in history that needs to happen has happened and so now the next step is going to be the second coming? Or is there some other meaning? What does he mean by the end is at hand? Well, we saw earlier here in 1 Peter, if you've been with us in the series, chapter 1, verse 20, that Jesus, Peter says, was made manifest in the last times. So Peter, and elsewhere in the New Testament, identifies the coming of Christ with the beginning of the last times. And in Peter's next letter 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 3 he says same apostle scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing and by that he doesn't mean future as if there weren't scoffers in Peter's day he was dealing with scoffers in 1st Peter 2nd Peter he's saying now scoffers are here now Scoffers were there 2,000 years ago. Scoffers are here now in 2021. They've already come. Very similarly, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, he says, understand this, in the last days, there will be times of difficulty, like global pandemics. And by that, Paul means now, in his day. Continuing to our day, times of difficulty are here. Scoffers are here. So when Peter says, the end of all things is near, I don't think he's predicting that Christ's return will necessarily be soon for his first readers in the first century. It's not as much that Peter is saying, the curtain could fall at any time. But he's saying, we're living in the final era. The final curtain will fall in days like these, days of scoffers, days of difficulty, days of tribulation, days of global pandemic. And try as we may to isolate ourselves from it with American wealth and medicine, and technology, we are living in the end times. This is the final era of history between Jesus' first coming and his second. Brothers and sisters, the end of all things is at hand. You are living in the last days. And it is not that the inbreaking of COVID a year ago was a glimpse of what the end times will be like in the future rather it was an expression of what the end times are however much COVID goes away and we go back to normal it has been a glimpse a revelation of the times in which we live times of difficulty presence of scoffers We're in that final season of history, and so Peter says we must stay on our guard. That's where he goes next, that we stay on our guard, that we not forget the message of a global pandemic and all its effects as we move on. So Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Very similar words here, self-controlled, sober-minded. It's essentially saying the same thing twice. And this is... The second time in his letter that he's charging his readers and the church to be sober-minded. Another way to say that is keep your head. It's really important for Christians in times of difficulty. Keep your head. We really needed that in the last 15 months, did we not? Keep your head, come on. A major difficulty in trying times is keeping our heads, not overreacting to our circumstances, keeping our feet rooted in truth, not responding to the world by being lulled into a spiritual coma on the one hand. And on the other hand, it doesn't mean a hyper state of vigilance so as to never be able to rest as a Christian and see terror un- over, under, ev- around every corner. You remember uh, Jesus, of the 10 virgins in Matthew chapter 25. It's not that five of them slept and the other five didn't sleep. They all slept. But five were ready as they slept and five were not ready as they slept. Matthew 25 verse five, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. They were human. They had their patterns of life. They needed to rest. The difference is, those who were foolish had no oil with them. They weren't ready when the bridegroom came. While the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And so Jesus' point, at the end of the parable, verse 13 in Matthew 25, watch, therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour, which sounds like 1 Peter 4. It's not that we don't sleep as Christians or feast or marry or have children or play baseball, but we sleep ready. We feast ready. We marry ready and have children and raise them up ready, and if, You play baseball, play baseball ready. One way to say it is there are in human life vacations and time off and sabbaticals from our work, from our calling, from our day job. We're coming up on a sabbatical overdue for Pastor Jonathan. And we're excited for him to have the sabbatical. He should have that sabbatical from his work. It's good. But in the Christian life, there are no vacations from Jesus. There's no time off from Christ. There are no sabbaticals from Jesus for the sake of our souls. He is our great joy. He is our strength. rest which leads to Peter's next phrase here and the amazing place of prayer in the Christian life so Peter says here be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers literally it's just for prayers in other words keep your head for prayers be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers because prayer Talking to God matters that much. This goes back to chapter 3, verse 7, and the importance of prayer. That a husband would be motivated to treat his wife properly so that his prayers would not be hindered. Same thought here the importance of prayer. It is our life to know Jesus, enjoy Him, talk to Him and not be pulling away from him, not have our heart hardened to him, but to keep our head so that we don't lose what's most important, speaking with God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, we should stand in awe of how much our prayers matter, both to our own soul and in the world, in the way God chooses to run this world. Prayer matters for the life and health of our own souls and it is amazing the role that prayer plays in the most modest Christian in how God runs history. He tells us to pray, he listens to prayers, he answers prayers and so in difficult days we want to keep our heads so that we pray how we should as we partner with God in this way and how he chooses to run the world. So keep your head in hard days. That's number one. Peter says, know your times. We know our times. Let's remember our times as we move on from the pandemic. Remember our times. Number two then, we know our supply. This is verses 10 and 11. Jump down to 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, so notice there, each, Nobody is left out there. Each has abilities, given, cultivated, to serve and bless the church. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever, the, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, verse 11 holds a very significant place for me, personally. As many of you know, uh, our church was planted in 2015 from Bethlehem Baptist Church, our mother church. Kenny prayed for Bethlehem just a few minutes ago. I was a member of Bethlehem for 12 years, and I remember while at Bethlehem, Praying verse 11 over and over and over again. It was in our DNA. We prayed again and again let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies, that in everything he might be glorified. We wanted Jesus to be glorified in our lives. How do you glorify God in your life? Well, one significant way is pray ask for the strength so that as he provides the strength and you act in that strength he gets the glory as the giver of that strength this would be a really good thing to be part of the DNA of our church as well before helping out on a Sunday morning before hosting a community group before doing some activity on the street before anytime you need strength and you want to glorify God in what you're doing to pray and ask God would you supply the strength and then seek to in that strength as he supplies it. This is is an amazing dynamic in the Christian life. This is not a peripheral thing. This is at the heart of what it means to live as a Christian day in and day out, moment by moment, that we live, we serve in the strength of another. This is not a natural way of thinking. Not in our own strength. Not to our own credit, but serving, doing, acting, willing, and doing so in another strength, and not just any other strength, but in God's strength. That God would be at work in our working. But how does that happen? How is it that God supplies us with strength for what he's called us to do well you might say there's a natural visible way that God does that Psalm 104, verse 14, four, Psalm 104 verse 14 God causes the grass to grow for the livestock and he and plants for man to cultivate and he brings forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen his heart so as we eat in very normal natural visible ways we are strengthened and there's a way in which we say that strength comes from God Psalm 127 verse 6 says that God gives to his beloved sleep there's a way in which God provides Sleep. We receive it as a good gift from him. They're very natural, visible ways that God provides strength. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. That's true. Those those are true things. Go to the Psalms for the truth. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter chapter 4. What Peter is talking about, we might call supernatural, invisible means by which God supplies strength for his people. So what would those be? What are these invisible, supernatural means? You need to know this, this is the Christian life. Well, one is that God speaks. God's word is an invisible, supernatural means of supplying strength for his people, Psalm 119 verse 28, my soul melts for sorrow, strengthen me, the psalmist prays, strengthen me according to your word. So there it's not bread or sleep, it's strengthen me according to your word. Have you ever paused to ponder the amazing power of words for putting strength into people's hearts? My boys did Father's Day cards for me today. Words to put strength in me in reading those words. <laughs> One example of how, how people try to put strength in others through words is a kid's baseball game. You've been to a kid's baseball game anytime soon? You notice how much chatter there is? A lot of chatter, a lot of chatter in baseball. Now there's, Now, parents coaches, spectators, they'll talk at football games, basketball games, soccer games, hockey games, but those, they just keep going, they keep going. In baseball, there's no clock. Stop between pitches. So there's all this time for thinking and for talking. A lot of talk, especially for kids. And we adults, we sense the power of words to put strength in someone. We talk about encourage, put courage in someone, through words we need to put courage in that pitcher so that he'll keep throwing hard and not give up after just throwing three balls in a row or you put courage in the batter to stay in there not dive out of the way and not wish for a walk you got to put courage in that catcher so that he keeps doing his job and all that heavy gear and all those balls going in the dirt And you gotta put courage in the infielders and the outfielders so that they pay attention and stay in the game and are ready if it gets hit to them. You can tell I've been coaching 10 and 11-year-olds. God gave humans this amazing ability to be strengthened by words, to be empowered, supplied, motivated, or on the other hand, discouraged by words invisible words yes human words in very natural ways like on the baseball field that's very natural and in supernatural ways by the word of god think of jesus in the wilderness and jesus on the cross how did he keep going How did Jesus keep fighting for faith? What was Jesus' supply of strength after 40 days of fasting, facing Satan face-to-face in the wilderness? Man shall not live by bread alone, he said, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And how did Jesus keep getting strength on the cross. He quoted psalm after psalm after psalm. So the first way that we're supplied with supernatural strength is through God's word. And then there's God's spirit. He gives us not only his word for the supply of strength, but his spirit and word and spirit belong together in the way that God runs the world and supplies his people with strength. Over and over again in the scripture, if you just look up all the mentions of power, over and over again, power is linked to God's word and linked to God's spirit. God's word and his spirit go together in supplying strength, supplying power, not word only. If we only had his word and did not have his spirit, it would not be the same strength and not spirit only. As much as some of us may love to lean into the mystery and enigma of the Holy Spirit, it's word and spirit, it's spirit and word coming together powerfully, the spirit taking the word and using it to give strength to our souls. So God supplies the spiritual strength for words and for deeds that glorify him, and the giver gets the glory. But one more, one more component here to mention about the supernatural strength. I mean, if, if you want your mystery and your enigma, uh, this, this might be it here. We might call this supernatural incarnate means of strength. The strength that God supplies comes not only through his word and through his spirit, but also through his son. So Peter says through Christ Jesus there. And the Apostle Paul talks about this on several occasions, about how he gets strength, might, power through Jesus in particular, 2 Timothy 2 1, he says to Timothy, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So there is a grace that comes in Christ Jesus that is strengthening, that Timothy should draw upon and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But this strength is not only through Jesus, it's also from Him. He gives it. Maybe you remember the, if <laughs> you went to Christian high school or had Christian friends in high school, and uh, one of them was an athlete and signed your yearbook with Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Which means, as you may know, not only bench press 300 pounds and hit home runs and score touchdowns, but also keep going in the hardest of times, in the wilderness, on the cross, in a pandemic. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ provides strength. First Timothy 1.12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus my Lord. So not just through Jesus and from Jesus, but also, and here's the mysterious part, there is also a strength of Jesus. A strength of Jesus that he is able, as the risen, exalted, reigning Lord of the universe, as the God-man, to supernaturally give his people his own strength in moments when they need it most. And I say this on the basis of Colossians 1, 28 to 29. I go here often in moments when I'm most desperate, when my tank is most empty, when I feel the need for strength. And it's not on vacation, it's not on an afternoon where I can just take a quick nap. There's a calling in life as a dad or as a husband or at work. And I just don't naturally feel the strength for it. I need help. I wanna serve in the strength he supplies. And it's okay that I don't have the strength for it. And he provides it. Here's Colossians one. Paul says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's not just going out to play baseball. He's He's got a calling here for the good of others. This is a calling for love. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I'm so helped to know that not only God himself supplies strength, but Jesus, the God-man, God who took human flesh and blood, provides not just for Paul but for all of us who are in him he can provide his own energy and powerfully work it in us for the callings he's given us and the giver gets the glory so city's church oh what grace we have to make first Peter 4 11 a banner for our lives and for our church and our various callings and the giftings that we have, that we not do them in our own strength, but in the strength that he supplies, whether that's word or deed, whether that's in this one hour a week or the other 167 hours of the week that we're at church. You know, this, this one hour of the week, this is like 0.6% of the week. And if we expand it out, if if we give it 70, 75 minutes, okay, we can round up. 1% of church life is Sunday morning. It is so easy for us to identify this hour with the whole of what it means to be the church. This is 1%. So... 1 Peter 4.11, as we pray to get ready for a service, to greet at the back, do we do on Sunday mornings, and 1 Peter 4.11, as we live the rest of our 99% of church life the rest of the week. So in Christ, we know our times, we know our supply, and then finally, we know our calling. This is verse eight. We know our calling. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I just think of all that we've seen so far in this letter in these last weeks about the call to be sober minded, to live holy lives, to conduct ourselves properly before the world, to submit to God's established order. And now Peter says above all that's amazing above all in all of the counsel and teaching and exhortations and commands that Peter gives. He's got an above all there is an above all. There is one thing we might say that binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's how Paul talks about it in Colossians 3. Peter was there. He was there with Jesus the night before he died and Jesus said, a new commandment I have for you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this will all people know that you are mine when you have loved one another. What a calling we have, what a calling card we have to display for the world and all the more when the end is near and when people feel the tensions of difficult times and are at each other's throats the context of love is so critical here when Paul wrote his words in 1st Corinthians 13 that we love to read at weddings this love chapter he wrote to a deeply divided church. Love was not just warm feelings that they should have for each other in peacetime. Love was a call to costly action in conflicted relationships. He was calling them to do something hard. And when Peter writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, it's because there are challenges. That's why he's saying love, because there's challenges. He doesn't need to say love, above all love, if it's easy. Their love is being tried. People in the church have offended one another. They have hurt one another. That's why he says, for love covers a multitude of sins. There are many sins that need to be covered in the church by love. Such love is always needed in the church to maintain peace. But as you know, as we have all lived through, there are times where it is particularly needed when there are tensions, when people have offended each other and frustrated each other and said things they shouldn't have said. And when the wisest way forward is not that we go back and review all the details and show ourselves to have been in the right the whole time, but when the wisest way forward is cover it, cover it with love. Have enough love to cushion the offense, the frustration, the misstatement. God has been very kind to our church in the last year and how he has spared us any major conflict, division, any blow-ups. But as we move forward in life together after COVID, we do so in a world that is conflicted, divided, suspicious, vengeful, is all around us. If we're not living by a different pattern and drumbeat, we will start to live by that tune. And so Peter's word comes to us this morning. I think it's fit. It's meeting us this morning. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You have done well. You have loved one another earnestly. Keep doing it now in life together after COVID. So we come to the table now together. And as we do so, we finish with verse 9. Verse 9 is... A particular application of this big, above all, call in verse 8 to love one another. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Which I take as a word to community group leaders, life group, hosts, and all of us in this new season Ahead, With the summer before us, there's fresh opportunities for maskless, socially proximate interaction here and in our homes. We have opportunities to love tangibly through greeting one another. Hospitality is relevant here as well as in our homes. Don't identify hospitality only with opening your home, though that's a manifestation of it. A lot of times, it can be easy for some kids. I have a daughter who goes up to kids on the playground and says, Hi, I'm Gloria. You want to be friends? It's not that easy for most of us adults to be the the one who takes the initiative to say, Hi, I'm David. You're a new face to me, which is a really safe thing to say right now because we had these masks on and so all the faces right now are new, right? Even if somebody's been here for two years, they have a new face, right? Hi, I'm David, your face is new. (laughs) It's not easy. There's a ministry of hospitality. Hospitality literally means love of strangers. It's the kind of heart that isn't just content to keep going around with the people that are comfortable. And these can be big ways and small ways. And one manifestation, of course, of love for strangers is inviting strangers, neighbors, fellow Christians we don't know well into our homes. And the reason that Peter says this to do this without grumbling is because that's a real temptation. We should acknowledge that those who open their homes often grow tired of the service and Peter says don't just keep doing it he wants us to do it in a certain way he wants us to do it without grumbling he wants us to do it gladly wants us to do it with joy so as we come to the table here this morning we come as strangers the table is the kind of place where people gather as strangers and leave as friends. We meet at the table in our homes. And we meet here at this table week in and week out as we share in the body and blood of Christ. This is where strangers become brothers. And that's our prayer now as a as a church for our life together after COVID that strangers would become brothers. That those who have been strange to Christ and to the church would become brothers through our witness. God, would you do it in this new season? Would strangers become brothers in Christ? And those of us who once knew each other well and might feel like strangers now, after this weird last year and a quarter, that we would no longer feel like strangers, But that as we eat together at the table, eat together at our tables, that we would be renewed in our familial connection as brothers and as friends. And for new people. This room is big enough that all of us, those of us who have been here the longest and know the most, have strangers here. And one thing we do week after week as we gather together, as we meet each other, as we talk, as we share at this table, strangers become brothers. So as we bring the elements around, this is a meal first for the members of our church. But if you're here with us this morning, we want to extend God's hospitality to you. If you would say that Jesus Christ is your Lord, he's your savior, he's your supreme treasure, we'd invite you to eat with us. Our pastors will come around, distribute the bread, we'll eat together, then we'll distribute, oh, no, it's still together. That part of COVID's not done. It's all one thing, one cup. Bread and juice together, and then we'll eat together. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.